Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of Almighty God. That means, as Jesus speaks, there is no fault and cannot be any fault in it. And he speaks to us here this morning. Hear his words. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So far in the word of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing as we gaze upon these words. May we have hearts to receive and lives to respond for the glory of your name. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we now come, having last week kind of looked at the the umbrella of this Sermon on the Plateau, we come to the beginning of the sermon, the Beatitude section, which uh, parallels in a lot of ways Matthew's Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but there are some differences that you can spot really easily, aren't there? Matthew has eight Beatitudes. Luke only has six. Uh, Luke doesn't even pick what we might expect if you were going to just choose part of what Matthew recorded. Matthew's first four pulled together as a unit, then there's a transition, and his uh, second four fit together. And so you might expect Luke to say, well, I want to focus on what he was focusing on in the first half or in the second half. But Luke doesn't do that. He jumps around. He has four that parallel four of Matthew's eight. What Luke gives along with that that Matthew doesn't give is the curses, isn't it? We have the Beatitudes, then the woes. And if you're not familiar with the words Beatitude and woe, I suspect you children don't especially hear woe every day. Maybe you do. Maybe, that, maybe that's how your parents uh, warn you not to do something. Whoa! Wait, no, I doubt it. We, we don't use beatitude and woe very often, do we? So you can just think blessing and curse. Blessing or punishment. And that's what Luke gives us that Matthew doesn't. Now that's interesting because we've been saying that Luke is presenting us this contrast Moses in the Old Testament came down from the mountain brought the law of the kingdom and Christ comes down from the mountain and is giving the kingdom of heaven law the the new covenant law 
the kingdom of God law in this sermon. And it's interesting that at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, when they entered the promised land, Israel was to declare the covenant law of the land through blessings and curses that echoed back and forth from one to the other mountain. Deuteronomy 27, you see that. There's all these blessings. Then there are all these curses. And what do you know? When Jesus is giving the law of the kingdom of heaven, what does the kingdom citizen look like? He gives us a list of blessings and a list of curses. They're roughly parallel uh, with Matthew's Beatitudes, but they, they do make that focus also on the cursed aspect. And so we, we could state Luke's four blessings and four curses with four words, poverty, hunger, grief, and hatred. Poverty, hunger, grief, and hatred. As we think about these beatitudes and these curses, uh, the first thing I think we need to get out of the way, though, is that Luke isn't making some absolute generic statement as if being poor makes you blessed, being hungry makes you blessed, grieving makes you blessed, and being hated makes you blessed. Or the reverse of that, having money makes you evil. Having food in your stomach makes you evil. Then we should cancel our potluck after, right? None of, none of that. That would be wrong. Uh, having joy makes you evil. And having peace with your next door neighbor makes you evil. Right? Christ is not saying that. that. That would be what he would be saying if he's making a generic, general statement with all of these things. But of course, we know, we know that's not the case. Think of each of these things in the Bible. For example, money. In the book of Acts, two of the most praised people in the book of Acts, two women, Dorcas and Lydia, they were rich women. And when they became Christians, they did not give everything they possessed away and join the ranks of the homeless. They continued to be wealthy women. And they used some of that wealth to greatly bless the poor. But they continued to be wealthy. And they are blessed in the book of Acts. In fact, to the extent that when one of them dies, all the poor come out and wail and say, she can't die. She should be blessed. She shouldn't be dead. And Christ brings her back to life through Peter. So right there we see that the New Testament does not teach possession of money evil. Also, in Acts 2, I'm sorry, not Acts 2, but shortly after Acts 2, when, when everyone's giving away, uh, when they're selling property, they're selling assets off, and they're giving to help those in need. One couple gets disciplined for holding some of the money back, but is it because they held the money back? No, it isn't, is it? It's because they lied about it. Peter makes that very clear. That the Holy Spirit is disciplining them not because they chose to sell a field and only give part of it to the church diaconal fund, but because they lied and said we're giving all of it to the church diaconal fund. If they had said we just sold a field for 3000 whatever and we're giving 300 of it to the church diaconal fund, they would have been fine. They could have 
gone on a vacation to Damascus or wherever they would have gone for vacation with that. They, they, they could have uh, put an addition on their house. There wouldn't have been any problem with this, but they lied and said they had given all. So right there we again see that having money is not the problem. It's what we do with it that can be a problem. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9 tells us a prayer that you and I ought to be praying about money. And it isn't, God, make me wealthy. But it's also not, God, make me impoverished so I can be blessed. What is the prayer you and I are supposed to pray? We are to pray, give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, scripture is clear. Money in itself is not evil. Poverty in itself is not a holier way to live. Same thing with food. Uh, there's a lot of fasting in the Gospels, but he, have you ever noticed far more than fasting, we find Christ and his disciples eating. They're eating all the time. They're going to one sinner's house for a meal after another sinner's house. They're walking through the fields. They're plucking grain so they can eat. They eat and they fellowship. There's a blessed connection between these two things. They fellowship over, over food and God blesses them for it. In fact, Acts 2, that's what we find there, isn't it? They worship together on the Lord's Day. They even break the bread enjoying the Lord's Supper in worship, Acts 2.42. And then they love the community, the fellowship that they have in worship so much that the following verses tell us there's, no, there's hardly a day that passes when someone from the church isn't at someone else's house for dinner. Because they want to be together. There's a blessedness to eating. It's not that just being hungry makes you holier or more blessed. Same thing with happiness. The New Testament does not tell us to avoid happiness and laughter across the board. Rather, it tells us to rejoice exceedingly with great joy and to uh, seek to be uh, rejoicing with joy, unspeakable, full of glory, always rejoicing in the Lord, not abstaining uh, from all pleasures so that you can just be a mopey, grieving person. Same thing with hatred and persecution, right? What does Scripture call us to? Well, Jeremiah 29.7 actually tells us as believers, we're not supposed to go out and make as many people hate us as you can. What does it tell us? It says, pray that there will be good in the community where God places you for your sake so you can live peaceably and in the new testament romans 12 18 tells us as far as depends on us we are to live at peace with all men so kingdom citizens are not being told by christ anywhere in the new testament or old testament that they are to be obnoxious and stoically beg for persecution go on hate me that's not what scripture teaches us so all of these things are not what Christ is saying here. Money, food, happiness, peace are not sinful and wrong in and of themselves. And the believer is not sinning for enjoying this life in the right way. Nor is the believer holier for just moping around all the time and being gloomy. 
Sometimes we think that's what we're supposed to be, don't we? But that's not what Christ is saying. So what is Christ saying with his Beatitudes at the beginning of this sermon? I think it can clearly be thought of in this way. He's saying that our hope is not to be in the stuff of this world, but in the new heavens and the new earth, where we will be with Christ and dwell with Him, our King, and find our fullness in His presence. Our hope, to put it another way, and tie it into last week's sermon, that umbrella of this Sermon on the Plateau. Our hope is to not be in ourselves or in our expectations, our experiences, but in the mercy of the Father through His Son. That's what these blessings are all about. And that's what these curses are warning us to remember. So this morning I want to look at the first two because they click together so tightly, don't they? And then we'll come back and spend some time on mourning next week, Lord willing, and then another week on hatred down the road. But this week, the first two, so as we look at the first of these Beatitudes, look at verses 20 and 24. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And I think that last word is very important for what I just said, isn't it? Consolation has to do with hope. Cursed are you because what you have right now, your riches, are all the hope you have right now. That, that's an interesting curse. And the reverse blessing is, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. To whom is this blessing pronounced? Um, You probably, right off the top of your head, remember to whom it's pronounced in Matthew, don't you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It qualifies it. It doesn't have to do with your bank account, Matthew says. It has to do with your heart. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Is Luke saying something different because he leaves that off? I I don't think he is. There are three things that would point us towards the same conclusion as Matthew in the text. The first is that although in verse 17 we read there is a great multitude of people besides the disciples present at this sermon... Nonetheless, in verse 20, we are told, but Jesus looks at his disciples. Secondly, what does he look at his disciples and say? You poor. Not poor indiscriminately, but a specific set of people. You, the disciples, you poor. And then third, you can also see that he doesn't say the kingdom of God will someday be yours if you're poor. Now now you're physically poor, but someday you'll be eternally rich. No, he says, looking at his disciples, saying you poor, he says, yours is the kingdom of God. He's saying to his disciples, you are already rich in God. 
though poor in some other way. And so clearly the thing he's getting at is the same thing Matthew's getting at. Because your spirit is poor, what does it mean to have a poor spirit? I like how one author puts it. He says, the reference here is to persons who do not seek their wealth and life in earthly things, but who acknowledge their own poverty and come to him to seek real life. There's an acknowledgement in the spiritually poor. As one hymn writer puts it, nothing in my hands I bring. That, that's what it is to be spiritually poor. Surely to come before a great God whom you have offended, you should come with something to buy His favor. And the spiritually poor says, but I don't have anything. Nothing. I'm empty. The bank account of my righteousness negative not even just empty it's negative i've done much that is wrong not much that is right nothing good have i to bring that is to be spiritually poor but that same author i just quoted i think helps us see how earthly poverty sometimes does overlap with this thought a little bit Hear what he says in addition. Uh, Again, the persons who do not seek their wealth in life in earthly things, but who acknowledge their own poverty and come to him to seek real life. Where outward poverty, that's your bank account, leads anyone to realize his utter dependence on God and to walk humbly with his God, such a person will be blessed. And that's often the case, isn't it? Our earthly poverty does remove much pride. Or it can, it doesn't always, sadly, but it can remove much pride so that we can actually see our spiritual estate as well. Christ does kind of the, the, the same point, but in the opposite way by looking at the rich in another place. You... You know it well. He talks about um, the rich. To enter the kingdom of God is harder than a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Which is why we all just sang something very important to note. Whether you have a good bank account or an empty bank account. We sang all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Blessed are the poor, you poor disciples, having seen your need of him. Yours is in Christ the kingdom of heaven. Now, And one day you'll know the fullness of that when you are with Him and forever with the Lord.
one author says, empty hearts Christ will fill. But those that are filled with pride, their own riches and their own claims will get in the way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, the second blessing and curse then connect with this very closely, do they not? Verses 21 and 25, we read, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. And woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be filled. Again, Matthew tells us this isn't just an empty stomach. The pastor preaches really long sermons. You got really hungry before the fellowship meal. You're blessed. No, Matthew tells us the the hunger is specific. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. But cursed, says Luke, are those who are full now, for they will be empty. Well, think of the spectrum of things we can be full with now that get in the way of us seeking our righteousness in Christ alone. It might be your own righteousness. Often that's the way we think, which remember what Paul says about our righteousness? Filthy rags? Not good enough. Cursed are you who are full now with yourself, maybe with your own ego, your own good works, your own interests, your own... could also be physical in nature that would get in the way of looking for Christ's righteousness. When we're full of food and drink and comfortable we may be less prone to think of other areas we need help. Other things we need for righteousness. We may even, if we are full of food and drink, think like the Pharisees, who surely were shocked by this sermon Jesus preached. For they thought and taught, blessed are those who have enough to eat, for it proves God loves them. But Christ says, if that's getting in your way of truly hungry for a righteousness that you don't have, then your full belly and your quenched throat are actually a curse. For one day, you'll realize how empty you are. Maybe it's full, a full garage full of toys. So you don't think of what you need for the future. Maybe it's a bank account or a retirement security that keeps you from thinking about the time when rust will destroy it all and the kingdom of heaven will arrive. 
Cursed are those who are full, for they will hunger later. They will be empty one day, not having thought about their own unworthiness. They will stand before the throne of Christ, the same man, the same king who speaks in this sermon. And like, like a balloon that has a pinprick in it, they'll realize that all the fullness they'd had was just hot air. And it will all deflate out of them in a moment when they hear him say, Depart from me. I never knew you. But, says Christ, blessed are those who hunger now, for they will be filled. One of the obvious areas where you might see a hunger now is if you have a poor spirit, a hungering for forgiveness, a hungering for mercy, a hunger for a righteousness you know you can't bring to the table. We daily cry out for forgiveness And if we daily cry out for forgiveness to God in Christ, we daily find ourselves filled with forgiveness. Even now. And a righteousness before the Father that is not our own. I'm not sure we always think about how full Christ makes us. And I I was drawn to this. I I often find it a great blessing that that Mary Ellen gave me a lot of Jerry's books. Getting to see the heart of my predecessor is a great blessing to me. And this week, I was struck by something Jerry wrote. It's in your bulletin. Especially for those of you who knew Jerry, I thought you might want to hang on to it. Jerry had a scribble. I had to work hard to discern some of the words, but I think I got it. Next to this verse, blessed are those who hunger now. He put these words, to desire forgiveness, to discover love, acceptance, guidance, to desire forgiveness, to discover the relationship with the God who created you. Do you see what he's saying with those scribbles? Think of the prodigal son. What did he desire? He desired forgiveness, but he assumed it would be the bare minimum scrap of forgiveness to be the pig feeder for my father instead of for someone else. Because then at least I would get some food and clothes and a bed. The desire for forgiveness sometimes that we bring in our poverty of spirit is thinking maybe he'll give me a stale scrap of bread 
of forgiveness. The bare minimum of what I need before Him. But what did He find as He hungered for that bare minimum forgiveness? He found forgiveness of a father waiting, watching, running, embracing, clothing in a robe, the best robe that wasn't even His, feeding, killing the fatted calf, giving Him the best portion of meat. That's fullness. And that, I think, is what Jerry is scribbling there. Those who hunger and thirst after the forgiveness of God and the righteousness that isn't our own, what do we find? Is He stingy in giving you enough to survive eternity? No. He gives you love. He gives you acceptance and guidance and a relationship with the very God you've offended. So great is the fullness you'll receive, you who are poor in spirit and come with empty hands seeking fullness at the table of the Lord. That is to be full indeed. Well, beloved, if we would be secure in our knowledge of whether or not we are kingdom citizens, then one thing we ought to do often is to ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our eyes to our own emptiness, to open our eyes to our own poverty, our own inadequacy, our own unrighteousness. To see that we have nothing in our hands that would secure our place in the kingdom. No worth, no value, no bribe money, no fullness. The opposite of everything the world tells you you have in and of yourself. And Christ says to you, would you be blessed? See that you are nothing worth looking at. Nothing worth purchasing. Nothing of value on your own. And find blessing knowing that in Him you are righteous and pure and lovely. For He in His Son has purchased you not with silver or gold in your bank account, but with the perfect blood of His own Son. And that Son is making us together, the bride, a spotless bride, a valuable bride to present to the Father one day. Colossians 2, 8-10 warns us of worldly fullness that would get in the way. We read there, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete. Might we paraphrase, you are full in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. 
See, Christ here before us is contrasting. He's contrasting this this fullness and richness which the world claims that will only be empty and shallow and nothing on the day of judgment with the poverty and emptiness of heart and soul now that leads us to seek fullness in Christ alone. J.C. Ryle challenges us then. These Beatitudes ought to raise within us a great searching of our hearts. Search your heart. When Christ comments on both your bank account and your heart, do you flinch because you don't like what he's saying? Or do you cry with joy inexpressible that your bank account, good or bad, has nothing to do with your eternity? That your stomach, growling maybe right now, has nothing to do with your eternal state then, but all has to do with the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. Believer and unbeliever alike, consider today that all the fitness He requires of you ever is to see your need of Him. Let us hope, not in ourselves, but in the mercy of God.